And for those of you who live on the Kansas side, you know that they, uh, they're doing a lot of road work around Quivira and 435, which is right where that hospital is. So we're driving to the hospital late on a Saturday night, and we can't figure out how to get there. So, you know, we think, well, Quivira is closed, so we exit, I think, at Nall or Row, one of, the, one of the streets before, and we try to drive down 103rd Street or something like that, or College. So we'll take College, and then we'll go over Quivira since the exit's closed. And we got to college, and there were just cops all along college with cones set up. They said, yeah, you can't go over the bridge this way. So we thought, okay, we'll drive down to 103rd Street. So we circled the block and tried to come up the other way, and we got to 103rd and Quivira, and there were cop cars there set up. They said, you can't come in this way. They said, well, how do, how do you get to the hospital? It's the only way. And the cops said, they're getting ready to blow the bridge up, and the hospital's in the blast zone, so you, you can't go there. And he said, it's an emergency. I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I had a couple that just had a baby, and, you know, they need to go to bed. I, I need to get in there to pray. And he said, well, there's a back way, and he kind of told me the back way, but he said, they're getting ready to blow the bridge up, so watch out. So we drove in, which, you know, for me is like, cool. You know, we're going to get to, we're going to be blown up with the bridge. So we drive in, and we figure out the back way to the parking lot, and as we get there, you know, they've got the bridge all lit up, and there's cop cars everywhere, and as we pulled into the ER place where we had to park because the main hospital was closed, there were like four construction workers and two cops like hunkered down behind a cop car, like hiding. And like the bridge is from me to the back wall. I mean, it's just, it, it's 50 yards from the hospital. And we get out in the ER and Daniel says, you think they're going to blow it up? And I said, I don't know. So we start walking in and we hear over this huge loudspeaker, five, four, three. And we're like, oh no, we're, you know, what do we do? So we kind of just froze and then went, boom, and literally blew up the bridge right there in front of us. And I thought, you know, that's the coolest thing that I have ever seen because boys, little boys always like to blow stuff up and older boys like to blow stuff up. And I thought, that's one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. It's cool to see a bridge blown up. Here's what's not cool. It's not cool to see a marriage blown up. In the last 12 years in ministry, uh, working first in student ministry and then working in adult ministry uh, and then having kids who were in my youth ministry, they got married. Uh, and I watch their marriages just crumble. There's nothing cool about watching marriages blow up. But it happens more often than it doesn't happen. 54 out of 100 marriages blow up. Uh, 54% is the latest statistic by the U.S. Census Bureau, which means more blow up than actually stay together. And at our church this month, all month long, we've been in a series called Love, Sex, and Marriage, asking what does a biblical marriage look like and trying to figure out for the couples in our church, how to have a biblical marriage that doesn't blow up when times get tough and they're going to get tough. And I want to be honest with you. I think this is the most productive series that our church has ever done. Uh, I've, I've been contacted by so many couples. I've talked to so many couples. Um, this series has been communicated more positively back to me. Hey, we're going on dates. Hey, we're talking. Hey, we finally started dealing with this. I think this is the most productive series that we've ever had in our church as far as people actually going away and trying to make their marriages better. And today we're in the very last message of that. If you have a Bible, we're in Song of Songs 516. That's where we've been camped out all month long. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle and they're going to pass them out. If you forgot your Bible today, if you just don't have one, if you want one, wave at them. If you don't have a Bible, this one's yours to keep. Uh, we're, we're nearing now 250 Bibles that our church has given away since we started in September. We want you to have a Bible. This one, if, if you don't have one, it's yours. Put your name in it. Bring it back every Sunday. If you do have one, you can just throw this on the table when you leave. But we will every Sunday. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to read from the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible. And we are in Song of Songs chapter 5. And then keep it open because we're actually going to look at, uh, we'll look at three key verses before we set it down uh, and really dig in today. 
Song of Songs, by the way, might in your Bible be called Song of Solomon. It's just a few books after Psalms. If you can't find Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms in your Old Testament, you will be able to find Psalms because it takes up, seems like, almost half the Old Testament. Just keep going to the right and you'll read Song of Songs. But, uh, but our, our key verse for this series, as we've looked at what, uh, what we define biblical marriage is, is uh, Song of Songs 5.16, where Solomon's wife says about him, his mouth is sweetness itself, he is altogether lovely, this is my lover, and this is my friend. This is my lover, and this is my friend. We have said at our church, we believe that, the, that a biblical marriage is defined by two people who consider themselves best friends and passionate lovers. That's the picture that the Bible presents to us. Biblical marriage is people who are best friends and passionate lovers. And we've covered that now for three weeks. And today, if you, even if you look at the title on your little sermon notes, if you're brand new, we, we pass out sermon notes so that you can, uh, so that you can take notes along. They kind of look like this. And the title of today's message initially was The Ten Commandments of Marriage. And I was going to, on the last message of this series, just kind of try to give ten tips that, uh, that you need to hear to have a great marriage but I'll tell you what happened. As I was in the midst of putting that message together, I just thought this is too much information. Uh, and this sermon is going to be more like an information dump than a challenge to go do anything. You know, and and it's, it, as a pastor, it's not my goal to just dump information on you so you leave smarter. Uh, it's my goal to inspire you or to challenge you uh, to go and do one or two things every week to make your life better spiritually. So I, I kind of changed my message, and I'll tell you why I did this. I, you know, obviously, Ten Commandments is a biblical, is a, is a biblical thought, biblical theme. Uh, but in the New Testament, one time Jesus had someone come to him and ask him what the greatest commandment was. And if you have your Bibles, that's actually in Matthew chapter 22. You can turn there into the, in the New Testament. Uh, but by the time Jesus was around, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai received the Ten Commandments uh, more than 3,000 years before Jesus uh, was around. And by the, between Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and Jesus' time, a bunch of basically uh, Judaistic scholars, Hebrew scholars, had taken the Ten Commandments and they had turned them into uh, a book that is known as the Mishnah. If you're, if, if you're Jewish or you grew up around Orthodox Judaism, they not only have the Old Testament, but they have a, the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is basically the, the Ten Commandments expanded upon. And they actually took the Ten Commandments and they made a commandment for every letter in the Ten Commandments uh, that in, in the Hebrew alphabet. So they ended up having 613 laws, not 10. And every time Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees were fighting in the New Testament, it was surrounding these 613 laws that everyone had to know, had to keep if they really loved God. So this, it says, a teacher of the law came up to Jesus uh, in Matthew 22. We'll, we'll just read it here together. Um, and he wanted to know, what of the 613... Which one's the most important? Matthew 22, we're in verses 36 through 40. Um, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You might actually, in your Bible, if you have it there, just write down the number 613. Which one of the 613 that we keep as Pharisees is the biggest, is the best? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, all. I want you to circle that word all in your Bible text. All. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said not only your 613, but all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all the prophets, everything they said can be summarized in two statements. Love God 
and love people. You don't need to know 613 things about Jesus. You need to know two. Love God, love people. You don't need to know 10 things about marriage. You need to know just a few. So I have boiled down what originally was a message of 10 to, I've tried to condense it to one. We've talked about two all month long, and hopefully you know these phrases now and can repeat them for the rest of your life, that biblical marriage is best friends and passionate lovers. But, but I've added a third. Here's what I consider the greatest commandment of marriage as I look at Scripture. Um, that you are, as a husband and wife, supposed to become best friends, passionate lovers, and spiritual people. That as a husband and as a wife, you are to become best friends, passionate lovers, and spiritual people. Now, I want to make a statement that uh, when I first make it, you might disagree with it until you think about it, and then you're going to agree 100%. Um, Just because you're a Christian does not mean you're a spiritual person. You all agree with me? How many of you know a Christian who does not act like a spiritual person? Raise your hand. I know a Christian that doesn't act like it. How many of you, that person sitting next to you? I'm just kidding. Do not raise your hand. <laughs> but listen, one, one of the worst marriages in church history, it's really interesting. There's a guy named John Wesley uh, who's one of the greatest legends in church history. And the biographers of his life refer to his marriage as the 35-year war. John Wesley and his wife hated each other. Um, when, when they wrote back and forth in their letters, she admitted one time in a letter to him that she apologized for pulling his hair out one time when they were fighting. Dead serious, the John Wesley. John Wesley and his communication back to her uh, apologized for hitting her, um, but said he was just glad that he didn't kill her. Um, he, at the end of his life, the last letter he wrote to her, he, he basically, and I should quote it directly, but indirectly basically said, if you could live a thousand more years, you could never undo the hurt that you've done to me. He and his wife had a horrible marriage. John Wesley, who like, is a legend in church history, a Christian, did not live in a marriage defined by best friends, passionate lovers, and spiritual decisions. And here's what happens with marriage. You might jot these two words down. Regardless of how long you've been married, marriages either get bitter or better. They don't stay the same. Marriages get bitter or better. As you've been sitting in this auditorium this week, you're either getting more bitter about your marriage or your marriage is getting better. That's just the way it works. Those of you who are engaged or thinking about engaged, start the clock right now. Bitter or better as you move forward. That's just the way it works. And as I looked at this last message, I thought, man, what do I want our people to know? As we close this series and we get ready to move into another one, what do I need our people to do spiritually? And I just thought that today was the day, if you look at kind of our outline title, Uh, that we needed to focus on ourselves. So today is about focusing on you and you becoming the spiritual person that your marriage, your spouse needs for you to become. Now this message is the best message yet in this series for people who are not married because this is not just about marriage. This is about how to become a spiritual person. How do you become a spiritual person? Four characteristics today of spiritual people. Four characteristics that if you bring these into your life and marriage, your marriage will be better, I promise you. Four characteristics that if you work on these and carry these out, your marriage will become better, not bitter. Focusing on me, here we go. Number one, and I put these all in first person uh, pronouns so that this is what I'm saying about you. I have to, and when I say I, you should be reading this for yourself. You have to, we have to become more selfless in marriage. If you look at the root of Christianity, if you look at the root of Jesus' ministry, we find it in John chapter 13 when he washes his disciples' feet. 
And he said, a, a master is not above his servant. And basically, you need to serve each other. You need to become selfless. You know, all month long, we've been collecting questions from couples in our church through email, through Facebook, uh, through conversations, through counseling. And Danielle and I originally today were, were just going to do a, a message we titled Marriage to Marriage, and we were going to try to just answer all the questions, but we didn't feel like we covered enough ground to just sit and do Q&A. But I want to answer some of those questions today. One of the questions that I've been asked by more than one person this month is if I'm in a bad marriage and can only do one thing, what can I do? Like if my marriage stinks and I don't know if it's going to make it and I don't know if I want it and I don't know that I want to make it. If I'm in a bad marriage and I can only do one thing, what should I do? The answer that I would give you is become selfless. Don't make it about you anymore. You remember the, the, the little grammatical rules that we learned when, I don't even know what grade we were in, but my kids know them, so it has to be first or second, third, fourth grade, somewhere in there. Uh, but they would tell you, hey, anytime you're writing, anytime you're spelling, uh, it's always in a word, I before E, except after, yeah, you remember that little grammar rule. So, I've, you know, every time I write that, I'll stop and say, I before E, except after C. Um, and, and I always struggle to spell the word marriage. I always spell it wrong. Like every time I type it in my computer, it's got that little red squiggly line saying it's spelled wrong. And let me tell you how I remembered to spell the word marriage. And as soon as I said it in my head, I thought, ooh, that's good, that'll preach. Um, I'm writing the word marriage, and I keep writing it wrong. And here's what I thought. In the marriage, the I always comes first. That's how I remembered how to spell it. M-A-R-R-I-A-G-E, not M-A-R-R-A-I-G-E. In the marriage, the I always comes first. And I thought, man, isn't that true of people? Not just of grammar, but of people. In marriage, I come first. My needs come first. My wants come first. My desires come first. My habits come first. In marriage, I, the I comes first. Well, the Bible says it's the exact opposite. In marriage, the other person becomes first, or you, there, there's not really even one in front of the other. It's, it's a true face-to-face uh, union. It's, it's two people who are totally together. You know, Mark Driscoll's book, Real Marriage, that I've, I've kind of taught through a, a lot through this series, uh, he said that clinical psychologists have said it takes a marriage nine to 14 years for a spouse to move from using the word me to using the word me, we. Nine to 14 years where the mindset changes from me and my to we and ours. So if you've only been married one year, two years, three years, five years, you haven't even begun to make the shift that the I is not first in your marriage. You're still thinking like a single person. You're still thinking of what you need, and you, you have not become we yet. And the first thing you can do if you're in a bad marriage is become selfless. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this is really, if there is a key text to today's message that I want you to remember, hang on to, uh, this is it, Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we're told how to interact with people by imitating who Jesus is. You say, if I'm in a bad marriage, Christian, and can only do one thing, what do I need to do? You need to become selfless. Really, every Christian needs to learn to become more selfless in life. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. And, uh, and here's what it says. Your attitude. Circle that word attitude. Man, that's a great word for attitude. Attitude, selfless. Attitude, selfless. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or to hold on to. 
But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. I want you to circle those three words in your Bible. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that, that text right there, in theology, in, uh, in Bible study, that text is called the kenosis. You don't need to know that unless you're really into like Bible scholar stuff. That word is spelled K-E-N-O-S-I-S. It's what we talk about, the, the, the spiritual process by where God became a man. Uh, and I'm not going to go in depth on that, but we handed you a little card uh, called that, that, that highlights a Good Friday service that we're having. Um, and on Good Friday, I'm really going to teach through the deep biblical theology of the cross, which you see over here, and crucifixion, and sacrifice, and forgiveness. And I want to walk you through, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, how do you know that Jesus forgives my sins? How does that work? I'm going to walk you through that, but it's going to take about two and a half hours. So this is going to be more like a conference than a church service. We'll do worship, we'll take some communion, I'll teach, we'll take a break, we'll do a little bit more, but we're having a three-hour service so that I can help you understand what Jesus has done for you. It's totally mandatory. You don't have to come, but if you're really into learning and you like to learn theology and you like to learn deeper Bible truth, I want to encourage you to come to that. But here's the one thing I want you to take out of this today. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. What was his attitude? His attitude was humility. His attitude was humility. Now, I once heard humility defined, don't write this down because it's the wrong definition, as thinking less of yourself. You know, people who are truly humble, they just, they don't think very much of themselves. You know, they just, it's always all poor me and I can't do this. That's not the biblical definition of humility. The biblical definition of humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Do you see the difference there? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of others more. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus could have remained God, but he thought of other people rather than himself, so he came to be a servant. If your marriage is going to be great, not just good, but great, you're going to need one spouse or another who will become selfless and say, hey, even though I'm in a bad marriage, I'm going to change what I can. I'm going to fix I serve you. And listen, if you're not willing to do that, then, then I can't help you. If you're not willing to take the spiritual steps needed, then no amount of counseling from me will help you. So if I'm in a bad marriage, you need to this week go to your spouse and say, how can I serve you? If I'm in a bad marriage, you need to, number two, go to your spouse and ask this question, what can I do to help our marriage become better? And then shut up and listen to the answer they're going to give you. What can I do to help better our marriage? And then number three, and I'll, I'll throw these on our church Facebook site later so you, so you don't have to break your hand trying to write all this stuff down. Um, here, here's what you need to do, and I need you to listen very closely to this. If I'm in a bad marriage and I want to be selfless, you need to go to your spouse and you need to say these words. I'm sorry for what I've done to cause our marriage to get to this place. Because I'll tell you, man, it takes two to tango. You've heard that phrase? And if your marriage is bad, it's not just your spouse's fault. You need to know that. Somewhere along the line, you have done something. Even if it's you've done one and they've done 100, you need to apologize for your one. Because you know what that might lead them to do is begin to apologize for their 100. 
You see, if I'm in a bad marriage, the first thing I can do is just stop and be totally selfless. How can I serve you? How can I help our marriage become better? Uh, And I'm sorry for what I've done. Too often, when I counsel with couples, and I say, hey, tell me what's going on in your marriage. The wife will tell me everything the husband's doing wrong. The husband will tell me everything that the wife's doing wrong. Very rarely do in either of them sit in, a, sit in marriage counseling with me and say, here's how I've really messed up. Now, it causes him or her to react horribly, but here's what's wrong with me. You see, selflessness says, I'm going to focus on me, not somebody else. I'm going to focus on me, and I'm going to fix what I can fix. So I, I want you to become selfless. Now, to do that, you might have to do number two. How do, how do I have a better marriage? How can I become a more spiritual person? You have to become more repentant. And this is a really interesting Bible word that I, that I want you to grasp onto. This word repentant. In our lives, we're used to resetting, not repenting. You say, what's the difference? Resetting is starting over. We just want to start over and act like the old one never happened. Repenting acknowledges all the things in the past and works to, promises to, make sure you change that. How many of you played the, uh, and you're going to have to be at least 40 to understand this question, but probably not under 25, the, like the original Nintendo that you had to blow in to get it to work. Did anyone play that Nintendo? And it didn't even say on the instructions anywhere that if it breaks down, you just blow in it. But like every kid in the world knew that if it breaks, you just blow, you know, and it's like the game works. I don't know what they did that human breath made fix those Nintendo games, but it did. You just blow in your Nintendo and it would work. The game that I love to play on that, other than Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, was Tecmo Bowl. And it was my goal with Bo Jackson's Raiders back in the day, because Bo Jackson was like 10 times faster than everyone on the game, um, to go 16-0 and in a season. So I would start season after season, and here's what's happened. If I'd get 8-0 and 9-0, 10-0 and 11-0, and I'd get like late in the fourth quarter, and I was losing a game, and I thought I was going to lose my perfect season. Do you know what button I'd hit on that Nintendo? Reset. Yeah, that game never happened. Let's just start again. We'll just act like it never happened, and we'll start again. Repentance is not just acting like it never happened and starting again. A lot of spiritual men and women are struggling in their marriage over the past because they want to reset, not repent. They're not willing in their heart to be accountable for the consequences of their life. And they just say, let's just act like that never happened. Let, you know, let's just, that's in the past. No, it's, it's still very much in the present. It's a, it's a part of who you are. A lot of people are used to being sorry, but not repentant. They're used to being remorseful, but not changing. And repentance has with it an element of, I am so sorry that I will change. The word that we use uh, in the Bible is the word contrite. You should write that word down. It's C-O-N-T-R-I-T-E. And the word contrite, if you want to write this down on your sermon notes and then write the definition, means this, willing to do anything. That's what the word contrite means. It means I'm willing to do anything to fix what I messed up. You know, I I was with a young couple, oh, within the last six months, um, who was struggling in their marriage. And the wife had started a part-time job, and she she had had an affair with someone that she worked with at her part-time job. And the husband was, you know, she said sorry, and the husband was willing to forgive her, but she continued to work there. And I sat down with this couple, and I looked right at her, and I said, you need to quit your job. Like today, you call them and quit your job. You can't keep working at a job where you had an affair with someone who works with you every day. That's, that's not, if you're really sorry, quit your job. And she said, do you know how much that'll cost? And I said, do you know how much a divorce is going to cost? 
I mean, don't talk to me about, you know, 10 12 $15 an hour. Talk to me about I realize what I did wrong, and I will change that. Not only am I sorry, but I will change that. In Psalm chapter 51, we find David pouring out his heart after the most, after the, probably the worst sin that any Christian leader ever committed in Scripture. We see David's prayer asking God for forgiveness in Psalm 51. You say, what had he done in Psalm 51? He had, um, he had committed adultery with a guy who was in his army. And then after he did it and found out she was pregnant, he got the guy back, got him drunk, tried to get him to sleep with her so he would think it was his kid. And then after he, he wouldn't drink alcohol because all his comrades were still on the battlefield, he sent him back to the battlefield carrying a note that told the commander, put him near the front lines and then everyone leaves so that you can kill him. And then after he killed him, he called the wife and said, oh, I'm so sorry your husband got killed in battle. You can come and be my wife now. Like, if you've ever done anything that wrong, God bless you, you should probably be in jail. I mean, I don't know that any of us have ever done anything as wrong as David did. And in Psalm 51, we hear David tell God he's sorry. And here's what David says he'll do. Here's the picture of a, of a, uh, of a repentant heart. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says, you don't delight in sacrifice. That's in an offering that you would give at church. You don't delight in me just going to church or I would bring it, I'd come. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God. Here's what God is looking for when you've done something wrong are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. When someone has a heart to say, I messed up and I'm willing to do anything I can to fix how I've messed up, that's repentance. You know, one of the questions that I've been asked a lot this month comes out of a place of, of hurt and pain for Danielle and I. Uh, and the question is this, I, I talked the first week of our series about that, Danielle and I were, were married very young. I was still in college. I was doing a lot of stupid things that college kids do. And one of the things I was doing when we were married less than a month was looking at pornography. And Danielle caught me looking at pornography. We've been married two weeks. And it just, I mean, it, it, it like 14 days into our marriage, I thought it was just going to end. I thought this is over. And I've had a lot of people ask me, how did you and Danielle get past your struggle with pornography? How'd you guys deal with that? I, I mean, I've had dozens of guys and gals ask me that question this month. You say, why is that? Because it's the generation that we live in, unfortunately. You know, our dads had to actually take five bucks, go to a store, look a man in the eyes, and pay him to get a Playboy behind the counter. We can just pull it up on our phones, computers, internet. Nobody knows what it is. Walk into any college dorm after 10 p.m. and probably nine ten rooms out of 10, you're going to see some kind of pornography around. And, you, you know, you say, Christian, you know, aren't you embarrassed to talk about this stuff? Yeah, I'm humiliated, to be honest with you. It's not something I'm proud of, but I believe it's something that the Lord wants me to share because I think our church is supposed to help people. And if you're looking for a perfect pastor, this is probably not the church for you. If you're looking for a guy who doesn't have any spots on his past and who can't admit when he messes up, it's probably not the church for you. I, I wish I was better spiritually, but I got a long way to go. You know, as a Christian, I'm going to fail. As a husband, I'm going to fail. As a dad, I'm going to fail. As a pastor, I'm going to make some decisions for our church, and I'm going to think God wants us to do one thing, and it bombs, and I'm going to have to come say, I'm sorry. And I hope you're okay with that. And, you know, if you're not okay with that, this is probably not the place for you. But I'm going to be real honest about me trying to live my life spiritually because I, I think it can help people. But, you know, people have asked, how did y'all move past that? I, I don't know that, we, that we'll ever move past it. It's just kind of reality of, of our, of our marriage, and I think we're continually, Danielle and I would both say, there's con we're continually trying to build trust there. You say, well, how did you build trust? Well, I had a contrite heart. I was willing to do anything. Um, and when Danielle told me, you're going to get an accountability partner who, who I pick 
for you to make sure you don't do this. I said, whatever you want. And then when, when, uh, when Danielle said, I'm going to put some software on your computer so I can monitor everything that you're looking at, I said, whatever you want. And she said, when I, you know, I'm going to know every password that you have on your computer and on your phone, and I can have access to them at any time that I want to. I said, you can do it. And still to this day, she has all the passcodes to our TV. I can't buy pay-per-view at my own house. I don't know the passcodes. Danielle will pick what movies we go to see. I'll see an unbelievable preview come on, and I'll sit in my seat and think, she's probably not going to let me see that because there, you know, you know, there's something in it that she won't want me to watch even though I'm an adult. She has permission anytime. Anytime I'm on a trip, a lot of times I'll go away, and if I'm staying by myself, she'll ask me, are you struggling? Did you ask the front desk to turn off the pay-per-view channels? You said, is that, is that annoying? Let me tell you what's annoying. Finding your husband in two weeks looking at porn on the Internet. That's annoying. You see, for the rest of my life, I'm indebted to Danielle's trust, whatever it takes. If she said, I don't want you to ever use a computer again, I'd hire a secretary to do anything that I needed to do. I'm indebted to her trust. You see, true repentance isn't, hey, my wife caught me, you know, looking at porn, and, and we had confusion, and now when she walks in, I slam down the lid, and she says, what are you looking at? I say, it's none of your business. Do you think that builds trust? You see, someone who's had an affair, and their wife follows them to their work, or their husband follows them to their work, Get used to it. A truly repentant heart will say, you can come to work with me, whatever it takes. Repentance is seen in actions. It's not heard in words. We say we're sorry. We show repentance, whatever it takes. That's a contrite heart, whatever it takes. Now, for those of you who have a repentant spouse, you have to learn, and here's my part was repentance. Danielle's part, number three, was forgiving. For those of you who have a repentant spouse, you have to be more forgiving. You've got to be more forgiving. You say, Christian, it's really hard. I know. Christian, it still hurts. I know. Christian, will the pain ever go away? Maybe not. But you have to be more forgiving. One of the questions we received this month was, uh, was this question. Christian, how can I forgive a spouse who's had an affair? What would you say? That's a great question, right? How do I forgive a spouse who's had an affair? Do you know not everyone who's in a marriage where one, someone has had an affair just goes ahead and gets divorced? A lot of people work through it. You say, how do I know if I'm supposed to work through it or not? You need to really pray. You need to talk to people in your life. You need to seek scripture. If, so, if someone in your marriage has committed adultery, you have biblical grounds to get a divorce. But for a lot of people, God, does, that's not his first option. I think his first option would be forgiveness. Uh, and you say, how do, I, how do I forgive? How do I do that? How how's that work? You know, that's a good question. But this week, the conference that Pastor Ryan and I were at in Atlanta, they had a speaker on Tuesday afternoon. Real sharp-looking guy and his wife. They're campus pastors at a huge church in Nashville. And they got up and they started telling the story about a church they planted in Indiana 15 years ago or so. Moved to Indiana, and he kept saying, you know, we did this, we did this, we did this. And then he changed the pronoun to they. We did this, we did this, we did this, and then they did this, they did this. I leaned over to Danielle, and I said, He's, uh, he said, they. Is he not at that church anymore? And he got to the end of the story, and he said, you see, I wasn't able to continue past them, uh, more than, continue with them for more than three years uh, because I had an affair with my wife's best friend. And it was like, I mean, that room got so quiet. And basically, two Christian people came alongside them and said, listen, if you want to get a divorce, we'll walk you through that. But if you think that two young kids, if you think you can work through this, we're there. And he and his wife shared the story of how through seven years of counseling, of repentance, of forgiveness, 
they're finally at a place where they feel like they're healthy again. But she, she made this comment. She said, I have to forgive every day. I have to forgive every day. See, forgiveness is not a one-time event. Forgiveness is not even a decision. The fact is this, forgiveness is an action. It's not a decision that you just make. And when we look at falling in love, being in love, staying in love, actions always precede emotion. You're, you're going to do a whole lot more of what you begin to feel later than feel something and begin to do it. How many of you fall in love before you ever go on a first date? You don't, because actions precede emotion. The things you do in your actions, the flowers and the dates and the phone calls and the late night talks and the coffee shop visits and, you know, hanging out, those things lead to your heart falling in love. And it's the same thing with forgiveness. Some of you are going to have to forgive every day for years. And it, and it won't make the hurt go away. It won't make the pain go away. But your action is, I'm going to forgive you and then I'm going to treat you like I've forgiven you. You know, the, the New Testament word for forgiveness, you should write this down, is to act as if something didn't happen. To act as if something didn't happen. Forgiveness is an action. You don't pretend it never happened because it really did. You don't just forget about it because you can't. But you act as if it didn't happen. Actions. Forgiveness is action. And listen, some of you who have been hurt, the first thing you need to do you say, well, in my heart, I for, I've forgiven him. In my heart, I've forgiven her. That doesn't count. You need to tell them. You need to sit down this week, and you need to look them in the eye and say, I, I am forgiving you today, right now. And I may have to forgive you tomorrow and every day for the rest of my life, but I want you to know, in my actions, I'm going to forgive you, and then I'm not going to treat you like you did this for the rest of your life. My actions will lead to my heart forgiving you know, Andy Stanley in his, uh, in his book, Enemies of the Heart, an incredible book that has begun to shape the way that my marriage is, my parenting is. If you're a reader, you should get this book and read it. But he talks about forgiving people who have hurt you in this book. And he talks about how you either forgive or you become bitter. You hold a grudge. And grudges kill you, not the other person, while forgiveness frees you, not the other person. And he said there's three things you need to do. He said, one, you need to have a conversation. If, if you're in a place where you can talk to someone who's hurt you, and they care and they're repentant, you need to sit down and say, I forgive you. He said, if you're not in a place where you can have a conversation, you need to write a letter. But then he said something really interesting. He said, some of you need to forgive people who don't want your forgiveness, who aren't asking for your forgiveness, who don't think that they've hurt you, who don't care what they've done to you. And he said, what you need to do for them, and I, I don't have a chair up here, but he said, you need to get a chair, and you need to sit an empty chair in a room and put a picture of them on that chair, and you need to sit down in front of that chair and have a conversation to at least free your heart and say, I forgive you. And you may, you may not even care, but I forgive you. I'm going to let this go now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to act as if it hasn't happened because I'm not going to have my whole life held captive and prisoner by what you've done to me. I forgive you. Christians need to become more forgiving in the way we act and talk um, and the way we live in our marriage. Actions precede emotion. How many of you have seen The Vow? That, that movie. If you, listen, on your date night, if you haven't had a date night yet, go see The Vow, an incredible movie about a young couple who just got married. They get in a car accident. She gets amnesia, and she can't remember her husband and wants nothing to do with him. And he decides, because of the vow he made, he thought, you know what? I'll just make her fall in love with me all over again. And he went on every first date and second date, and he bought her the same food, and they went to the same places, and she never regained her memory, but she fell in love with him again. Why? Actions precede emotion. 
you begin with your actions to forgive, your heart will catch up with you eventually where it won't impact you for the rest of your life. So Christians have to be more forgiving. Uh, and then finally, number four, and I'm going to go quick here, Christians have to become more purposed. We have to be more purposed in the way that we live life together. Um, and here, here's the question I, I received this month. We have a good marriage. We want to have a great marriage. Uh, what should we focus on? And we talked about it. I'm just going to give you a few quick notes. And I'm going to invite the band to come back up here because we're going to close this series with, uh, with just one song of worship and, and just kind of seal this entire month with a worship song it's so that our, our marriages hopefully will bring glory to God. Um, but uh, we have to be more purpose. You say, in what things? One, in face-to-face -face living. We talked about how there are three types of marriages, those that are face-to-face, -face, those that are shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, and they're just partners, but they don't, they're not really in love with each other, those that are back-to-back, -back and they live in total conflict all the time. So you need to have face-to-face -face moments. One of my friends and I were talking this week, and he's like, man, I'm really busy. You know, you, sometimes you can't live life 24 hours a day face-to-face. -face. You're just running in too many dire different directions. But you, you can um, begin to have moments, face-to-face -face moments. How many of you in the day before cell phones fell in love with your spouse on those hours-long phone calls where, like, you'd fall asleep before they were over? You remember those? And now we don't ever talk anymore. Face-to-face -face moments are just getting alone and talking. You know what a great date would be? Put the kids to bed and sit down in the living room and turn off the TV and just talk. Those are face-to-face -face moments. You need to have more fun together. Man, a pastor this week at the conference said after two years of being at his church, his wife looked at him and said, I can't remember the last time I've heard you laugh. You're boring. You, you know, you're mean. You're nervous. You're anxious. You and your spouse need to have fun together. Go do events that you laugh together. My son told me about nine months into getting ready to plant this church, we were sitting at dinner one night, and I was always so just crazy focused. He looked at me. I think we were eating tacos one night as a family. He said, Dad, you don't smile enough. I uh, thought, hmm, you know, I probably need to focus a little less on the busy stuff and a little more on the good stuff. Have fun together. You need to go on family vacations together. Man, this is big for me. You say, oh, well, I don't have enough money for family vacation. Listen, it's cheaper than counseling. It's cheaper than divorce. You need to go get away. In the Old Testament, the Israelites had a built-in calendar of three weeks of vacation where their family traveled together to Jerusalem to do spiritual things. And you don't have to do spiritual things. But I went the first five years of my marriage, Danielle and I, without ever taking a Sunday off at the church where I was. I, I went more than 250 consecutive Sundays because I thought, man, if I'm not there as a youth pastor, well, if, if I miss one Sunday, all the kids will go to hell. I had what they call in church planning today a Messiah complex. I said, you know, if you think that, that people are all wrapped up in you, you're wrong. So the church planning agency that we're with right now makes every pastor at a church. And I say me and every other pastor, we have to take four Sundays off a year. They don't care what you do, but you just got to go away. You need to know that for the rest of my life, I'll be gone a week at spring break, and I'll be gone the last week of July forever. Like whether you go here or don't go here, that has become our family's calendar. We go those weeks, we turn off the phones, we turn off the laptops, and we just live life together. And it's so energizing. You need to have family vacations. You need to plan and budget for family vacations. Some of you men have weeks of vacations stored up in your account at work. You need to start taking some of those. Take your family away. Just love them. Be with them. And then you need to be purposed in your finances. Because actually, finances are the number one cause of divorce, not even infidelity. Finances. When things go financially wrong, the stress that it creates, it just implodes a marriage. So here, here's my challenge for you. You know, you need to, uh, this week, 
You certainly want to be more purposed in your marriage. You need to be more forgiving. You need to be more repentant. You need to be more selfless. But this book has six questions that Andy Stanley asked his kids every night before they went to bed. You will not be able to write all these down. So just know if you, if you have Facebook. If you don't have Facebook, go to our website and click on the Facebook tab. We'll put these on our Facebook our site so you can just print it out. Um, but he has six questions that he asks his kids every night before they go to bed. And I've tailored these this week to marriages. And here's my challenge for you as a married couple this week. For you this week to have a date. And a date may be in your living room when the kids are abed, in bed and the TV's off. But to discuss as a couple this week these six questions. Question number one. Are we at a good place right now in our marriage? Just ask the question and listen to your spouse. Are we at a good place right now in our marriage? Question number two. Are you mad at me for anything? Andy Stanley asks his kids that every night before they go to bed. Are you mad at me for anything that I've done? You might be surprised what you, your spouse answers. Uh, question number three, have I hurt you recently in any way? As a husband, as a wife, have I hurt you recently in any way? Question number four, have I broken a promise to you lately that I'm not aware of? Have I done anything that, you know, I said I'd do something and then I just, I forgot and I don't even know, but you're holding a grudge towards me. Question number five, is there anything that you need to tell me about anything? Is there anything you need to tell me about anything? Job, life, work, your state of mind, uh, anything that we can talk about. Uh, and then question number six, what worries, um, what worries you about the future of our marriage and family? What, what do you get worried about when you think about our future together as a marriage and as a family? If you will have that conversation this week, I promise you what I promised you at the beginning of the series that on March 12th, your marriage will be a lot stronger than it was on February 12th. In one month, your marriage will have taken a quantum leap forward because you would have paid attention to it. Now, Matthew 5.16 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify you in heaven. Basically, that means this. Christians should be different. And when people look at them, they should say, man, God's doing something cool there. I want the marriages in our church to be different. So that when people look at our marriages, they say, man, God must really be doing something there. It's a thought that people see us and they glorify God. So we're going to close by singing this song this morning, Glory to God. And my prayer for you and your marriage and your life is that your life, your marriage, your parenting, your family and your neighborhood brings glory to God because of the difference that you have in your life because you're doing it God's way. Best friends, passionate lovers, spiritual people. That's what God desires for you. Let's stand together and pray and then we'll worship. God, thank you for our time this morning in your word and all month long and what you've taught us. God, I pray that our church will be a church whose marriages are characterized as best friends and passionate lovers and spiritual people. God, let that be the testimony of the marriages in our church. We give you glory now. Let our lives bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's